Hey, Scott Walker. We're here in uh, Nashville, Tennessee, where I'm with my good friend and uh, a great friend of America, uh, Dr. Art Laffer. Art, great to be with you. Thank you very much, Scott. It's really fun having you here, by the way. Second time here That's in the That's right, office. yeah. Are you enjoying it here? I am, although I was great to see that the uh, the Medal of Freedom is encased now appropriately. So what an honor to get that. What was it like getting that from President Trump? I have no idea. It was such a blurry day. I was so excited that I don't remember anything. No, it was really, it was really very exciting. It's lovely. Well, and you've had an amazing career. I mean, obviously, most people think of the Laffer Curve and President Reagan, which was phenomenal when you think about, well, we'll be coming up uh, in about a year from now. August of next year will be the 40th anniversary uh, of the Economic Recovery Tax Act uh, of that year. But obviously, it wasn't just then. It was the tax cuts later in 86. And all the other people you've advised, not only here in the United States, but around the world, tell us a little bit about the, uh, the impact you've been able to have and what more we should be doing in the future. Well, it's fairly common sense, but I think most politicians really want to have prosperity. And, you know, one of the nice things about supply-side economics, if it's done correctly, it will give you prosperity. And, you know, every now and then they do it right and it really works. Reagan was a classic example of how beautiful it worked. We also had it in Proposition 13 in California, which was really a phenomenal 10-year period there in Santiago, Chile with Pinochet. Mm -hmm. I mean, Pinochet and Sergio de Castro and all that. I mean, to this day, Chile is still running on the same one. And then I spent a lot of time with Thatcher during all those years. And again, it's very straightforward, common sense economics. You know, if you tax people who produce uh, and spend the money on people who don't Mm -hmm. produce, you're not going to get much production. So it's basically common sense economics, but it's it's really fun to see it in work because there's so much trying to derail it. You know, so much political and hanky-panky and trying to pay people off and political favors and all that sort of garbage that gets in there. I mean, you, you look at, let's say, the CARES Act. I mean, there's some good stuff in there, Scott, on the medicine and all that, but all the rest of that stuff is just pandering uh, trash that they put into a bill to spend all of your children's future. Right, trillions of dollars. Trillions. I mean, you remember Everett Dirksen yeah. from, from Illinois? I love him, yeah. He had the phrase, you know, a billion here, a billion there. Sooner it adds up to real money. Well, we got the new version. Mm-hmm. A trillion here, a trillion there. It's, it's, it's amazing. It really is phenomenal because last year, I remember in December, I was at an ALEC conference in Phoenix, and we were talking about being worried that the federal debt would, would be at exceeding $23 trillion. Right now, it's already $26.5 trillion, probably. And going higher. Yeah, by the end of this uh, fiscal year, it could easily be approaching $30 trillion. Interest payments alone, I think, will be more than the entire federal debt was the first year our friend Ronald Reagan was president. Just a phenomenal, phenomenal mess in Washington. It's shocking. It is truly shocking. Now, when we came in in 81 with the real president, I mean, you know, we had high interest rates and all of that. But it's just shocking how they've missed. I mean, they've done it. And. Uh, it's it's very very scary to me, frankly. Uh, but we'll see how we can change it. I, I we mean, can change it, by the way. I believe so. Anything yeah. they can put in, we can take out. Yeah. <laughs> when I remember uh, my uh, one of my sons, Matthew's twenty six. Remember years ago in high school, and this is just what we're up against. Even teachers, and he had a teacher who was trying to be objective. She was teaching an AP government class, and he came home one time and had an assignment from his textbook. It was a, uh, something titled, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but something about how Ronald Reagan's tax cuts caused the deficit of the 1980s. And of course, I pulled a couple other books off of my bookshelf and said, here's your counter uh, to all that. Because as, as you well know, uh, the tax cuts uh, did the opposite. It was the spending by the Congress thereafter yeah. that made the difference. In fact, if anything, that early tax cut we just talked about in 81 um, probably could have done even better sooner. But... 
I suppose part of the compromise uh, with House Democrats to get it passed was it didn't it got phased in, if I remember yeah, right. Well, it didn't happen know, all at once. Yeah, if you know tax cuts are going to happen next year, what do you do this year? Right. You defer all the income you can on it. The reason we had the 81, 82 deep, deep, deep recession was yeah. because we phased in. And, you know, very few, I mean, Reagan called me and I talked to him about this, by the way, at the time. And he was, he said, oh, this, we had to do that for just political reasons. Mm-hmm. We won by, we, we got it voted in by a large majority, so we didn't have to do yeah. anything. Back then. But, but no one saw this logically at the time. And the way I explained it to the president at the time, this was after the bill was passed and signed, and is that, you know, uh, how much are you going to spend at a store a week before that store is this big discount sale? Right. It's a great analogy. And he said, oh, my God, how bad is it going to be? And I said, sir, it's going to be a barn burner. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I love the bill, but I really wish he hadn't done that. And, you know, he, he saw it clearly. I mean, but it happens with all of them. It happened with Kennedy's tax cuts. Same thing. We had the 61, 62 huge downturn. It happened with the Harding and Coolidge tax cuts mm-hmm. in, tw- in uh, uh, 1920, 21, and 22. Again, they won the election in 20. They came in in 21. They did the tax cuts down to 25% from 77 and did it, but they phased it in. Boom, we had the deep recession after World War I. Again, purely because of a, of a phase in of tax cuts. You don't phase yeah. in tax cuts. What do you think we should be doing going forward? Because obviously different circumstances and just the ebbs and flows of the economy here in the United States and around the world, obviously with coronavirus, a whole completely different scenario. But it's had a devastating impact on the economy, certainly GDP sure. way down. What what should our policymakers be looking at in the next coming years? Well, when you have a devastating effect on the economy, and that this has, there's no way you can redistribute your mm-hmm. way out of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, You've lost a huge amount. Now the question is just who bears the cost of those losses? And there's no easy way to do that. But the more you try to redistribute the cost of those losses, the bigger those losses are going to be. And you got to realize that, you know, and I'm very sorry it happened. We all are very sorry it happened. I mean, we had one in 1918 as well. It was just terrifying. And the government did a lot of very good things with this pandemic. And the medical advances and how we've responded have been wonderful. And great things, but you know, trying to offset the losses through government spending is a is a fool's errand. Yeah. You won't do it, and you'll just make everyone suffer equally. You know, the dream is not to pull the rich down. The dream is to raise the poor up, and you don't want any, you don't want inequality eliminated by making everyone equally poor. Right. Yeah, you don't. In the essence, yeah, you hear about others who say the difference between America. In, in many ways, there's many different differences. But in other countries, people look at, at envy at someone who lives in a home that's got some wealth and says, we're going to take that from him. Yeah. Uh, the American dream is someday if I work hard, I want to be in that house. That's so. exactly right. You know, the, the way I used to put it is these politicians love the poor so much that they want to make everyone <laughs> poor. You know, the trouble is, is that being poor is not cool. Mm-hmm. It's not neat. Mm-hmm. It's not lovable. Uh, being rich is neat. It is cool. It is lovable. And the dream has always been to make the poor richer, not to make the rich poorer. And that's the dream of America. Privilege is wonderful, and it should be shared with everyone. Yeah. It shouldn't be removed from people. You know, healthy people shouldn't be made sick so they can be the same as sick people. Yeah. Sick people should be made healthy. And it's balancing up. Ronald Reagan put it so beautifully. He said, it's balancing up, not down. Mm. And Kennedy put it the best. Mm. Can I give you the Kennedy quote? Please. All right. He said, no American is ever made better off by pulling a fellow American down. Yeah. And every one of us is made better off 
if any one of us, every one of us is made better off if any one of us is made better off. Then the last line of that talk, which I stole and we re- used mm-hmm. in 1980, I stole, I'm a Kennedy Democrat and I'm a sure. Reagan Republican, but we stole this. The last line is, a rising tide, it raises all boats. And I got your dear friend, Jack Kemp, to use that line. He was the rising tide <laughs> all the time. But we did the rising tide campaign for Reagan in 80. Yeah. Purely and simply on John F. Kennedy. And Which is powerful. People don't get it. You think of Coolidge. You think of Kennedy. You think of Reagan. Even now with what President Trump's done in terms of tax cuts. Yeah, up before the pandemic, for sure. Yeah. You know, the pan- since the pandemic has not been good. No, but but people forget that obviously it was a global pandemic. It was something brought on specifically in the United States. But up until then, we had, what, the lowest unemployment rate in some 50 years, lowest ever recorded for certain categories like African-American, Hispanic-American, Asian-American, people with disabilities. It's uh, cool. It's just, you know, race, rising tide raises all boats. Really and, does. you know, Jack Kemp, Ronald Reagan, and, uh, and uh, Bill Buckley, I mean, you know, you've got the team. And you, of course, what you did in Wisconsin, Scott, I have to, I bow. <laughs> you were terrific in Thanks. Wisconsin. Now, you didn't quite go as far as Tennessee yet. Right. But you had a little way to go, but you made some real progress. Well, we took, I remember, our, our unemployment rate was 9.2% beginning of the decade, uh, 10 years ago, 2010. Uh, the last few years I was in office, it was below 3%, which was the lowest it had ever fallen. We had uh, inherited about a $3.6 billion debt or gap in the deficit budget. We finished all eight years with a budget surplus. In fact, the rainy day fund was 190 times bigger than we took office. Mm-hmm. And yet we, we just got new statistics. And since 2011, uh, the total tax relief for the hardworking people of our state was over $13 billion. Isn't that amazing? And you can just see you put more money back in people's hands. That's exactly what you talked about. It works. It really works. Incentives matter. You know, they matter a lot. And people like doing things they find attractive and they dislike doing things they find unattractive. And taxes make an activity less attractive. Yes. So you tax work, output, and employment, and you pay for non-work leisure and unemployment, and don't be surprised if you don't get a good economy. And it, it as Larry Gatlin says, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know Larry Gatlin. I know him, yeah. Okay, you know him. He's a dear friend of mine. He says, Art, it ain't rocket surgery. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, and it's and maybe a good way to end is we, we've been talking about this today. Certainly reaching young people is so critically important, but a part of it's uh, not just reaching the young people, but reaching out to more professors, more educators, get, just getting the truth out, the, yeah, the facts. Amazing. We've talked about it. You, you use a similar analogy that I do often that, you know, taking the A students and redistributing their grades to the students who maybe are failing uh, really isn't fair. And not only is it not fair, it's not practical because the A students will eventually figure it out and, and not work hard to get A's. Uh, the reason I love that analogy or similar analogies to that is, in the end, the, the inverse of that is if we allow people to keep their A's in, in that example, um, we can also help the, the failing students get better course, grades and they all succeed. The same thing's true with the economy, right? You, you don't have to take from one to the other. We can all succeed, uh, which is the heart of your rising tide raises all boats theory. Yeah, there's always going to be a bottom 10%. In fact, it's going to be about 10% of the population, just as a matter of fact. The question is, what you want to do is have that 10% as a low number or as a high number. Yep. And, you know, what you want to do is making it better for the poor, making it better and making giving them more opportunities so that they can lift. And so that rising tide really works for all of us, Scott. And, you know, it's amazing. That's why I wrote Enterprise Zones, how to hit the inner side cities to create growth in the areas that really desperately need it. And they do. I mean, but you've got this welfare ceiling stuff that stops them from 
ever advancing. And you can see the consequences around it. It's a, Absolutely. It's a very sad, sad state. Last year, uh, AOC said on Twitter, uh, which is amazing I follow, but this statement was so shocking to me. She said that her generation had failed to experience American prosperity. And, of course, I almost gagged on, on, on reading that because you look not only in America but across the world, no generation in the history of the world uh, has had more prosperity, more freedom, more accidentation, less poverty, uh, less disease than the generation she's a part of. And I would contend it, it's because of three things. It's the fall of socialism, which has failed repeatedly around the world, uh, it's the rise of democratic capitalism, free enterprise, free, uh, uh, free association, entrepreneurship, all the things we're talking about. And, and probably most important, or equally as important, uh, the third component is the, the emergence of the United States of America as the sole superpower in the world. Uh, those three things have combined for unprecedented prosperity. Now, do we need to do more? Absolutely. We always need to help uh, our fellow citizens and and people around the world do better. But you don't do it by more government. You do it by getting out of the way and allowing more people to prosper. And it's amazing. For the first time in our world, uh, we have, uh, the statistics showed this last year, there's uh, more than half of the people living in the world are living at middle class or higher wages. That's because of capitalism or free enterprise, whatever you want to call yep, it. It's true. It's not because of socialism. We can do more, but, but the answer is not more government. That's for sure. That's for sure. Thank you very much, Scott. Yeah, great to be with Thanks you.